I uh, was on my way to, uh, or no, I was on my way home from a church meeting, uh, and it was, I think it was like a Saturday night. It was after Saturday night service, and everything was fine, and that's kind of how the weather goes out in Seattle, because um, we lived out there for a couple years, um, and um, after uh, the service got over, you go out, and there was like one to two inches of snow on the ground. It's like, whoa, this is very random very rare occurrence, but it sometimes, it sometimes happens because you're so close to the ocean that the weather just changes so dramatically. And so the weather in this case changed. And uh, what that did for me was it made me feel fairly uncomfortable because, I mean, I'm an Iowa guy, so I'm used to snow. What we're not used to so much in Iowa is snow with hills like, like that. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, it kind of changes the dynamic. And, uh, but I had four-wheel drive, so I felt pretty good. And, you know, I'm going to be honest, there was like a little ego going on because to me it's like, well, I'll show these Seattleites how Midwesterners drive in treacherous re- weather. You know, like I'll show you uh, kind of thing. It's very pastoral, very pastoral approach to things. And, um, and so I go out to go home to drive. It's like two communities, cities away. And so I get there. And um, the, the community, it's called Duval, is kind of built on the side of a hill because it's really getting close to the mountains uh, that kind of surround Seattle. And uh, it literally just goes up and up and up for like one to two miles. And of course, we're near the top, okay? Um, and so, because that's where pastors can afford to live, at the last city, at the very top. Okay, anyways, city on a hill. Think of it that way. It's very religious. Anyways, so I'm, so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go up this hill uh, this is going to be interesting, but I got four-wheel drive, so it's probably fine. You know, there's one to two inches of snow, kind of like there was this morning. And so I start going, and I do not make it. But I can get back down the hill. So I get back down the hill. I'm like, I'm going to do this again. So I go up again, and I get farther this time, y'all. I am making progress. And that's the thing you got to remember. If you're making progress, just keep going. That's what I tell myself. So anyways, so I say to myself, I'm going to get up this time because I want to get home tonight because I got church in the morning, all that kind of stuff. So um, I, uh, this time I really gun it, okay? And really, you know, get some real good momentum and to get to the top, right? Because that's what every self-respecting pastor do, you know, acquire high speed and don't stop till you get to the top, okay? And so, and some of you are like, oh my gosh, this is a pastor for me. Some of you are like, I don't know about this guy, but that's totally fine. And so I go, 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 and I make it to the top, very exciting. I know. We should celebrate. But anyways, so um, how that connects to this series is because in this series, we've been talking about, called Ready or Not, how we engage with change, how we connect with change. Because change is a very interesting thing, and it does a lot of interesting things for us. It can lead us to better places. But in a lot of cases, when things change around us, and we've been talking about this, when things change around us, it tends to lead us to fear. It may not be a lasting fear, but at least like a moment in time, brief season of a moment, uh, a few minutes, a few hours, a few weeks of fear. Because you're entering into something that's unknown, because that's what change does. It changes your routine, it changes your expectations, and then you get to this place of, I don't know what's going to happen. And anytime you don't know what's going to happen, you tend to be a little biologically wired to be a little concerned, a little anxious, a little worried, or just simply afraid. And when you're afraid, you tend to do things that aren't always the most rational. Okay, is that fair to say? Don't always do the things that are very rational. Um, Specifically, and Stephanie addressed this last week, you tend to throw, and we, we talked about this in week one, we have a tendency to throw spears. And that's the biblical story we were looking at in Saul and throwing spears. 
We tend to um, try to hurt the people around us, try to regain control of the situation, try to alleviate our fear by throwing spears at people around us. Um, oftentimes it's with criticism or uh, you know, critiques or uh, trying to get people's attention. Uh, I don't know if you have done this the last couple weeks, uh, but uh, Stephanie and I will say to each other now, like, hey, that was kind of a moment of throwing spears there, sweetheart. I don't say it that nicely, but you know, you're, you're throwing spears um, because, and, and so then my question, my follow-up question is, what are you afraid of? Which is not, I don't know, it just, yeah, some of you are laughing. Some of you husbands are laughing. Um, so it's not necessarily, it's a good question, but maybe not always right in that moment. Um, but there is something that you're afraid of. You're not afraid of not being loved. You're afraid of um, not being validated. You're afraid of what's gonna come. And so in response, we throw spears. We talked to a pretty great extent about that, okay? And so what I wanna do for today is I wanna talk about, uh, we, we covered the throwing spears part. I wanna talk about something else that we do that fear and change tends to lead us to do. And that's this right here. When we're afraid, we tend to change right and wrong. We don't abide by the rules we normally would if we weren't afraid or if change wasn't on our doorstep. Let me give you a couple examples. For example, when bad weather happens in Seattle and you really want to get home, so you have an expectation of getting home, but things change, you have this tendency, or at least I have this tendency, of then changing the rules, changing what's right and wrong. So for me, getting up that hill, do you think I paid attention to if there were any stop signs? Absolutely not. Why? Because you can't slow down if you want to make it home. And so, you know, in my mind, I don't even think I processed this, but I just didn't pay attention to because the goal of getting home and the situation at hand meant that stop signs just really didn't exist, okay? Do you think I cared about my speed or the speed limit in that situation? No. Why? Because at that point, right and wrong really didn't matter because I just needed to make it home. Where was I gonna stay for that? I mean, it's just, you know, the series of questions in my head of how the evening was gonna go if I couldn't get home, you know, and so I just justified my decisions because I was a little concerned about the situation at hand. I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes during bad weather, um, some of us, uh, if we're driving in bad rain or bad snow or something, we'll tend to drive more like in the center of the road to give ourselves some margin on each side. Is that legal? No, some of you are like, is it legal? No, it's not, but you do. Why? Well, because you're a little afraid. Other examples, like relational examples, is if you have a secret that you're trying to hide, big secret, embarrassing secret, I don't know, you just don't want people to know you're hiding something, you're afraid somebody's gonna find out, right? Isn't that the biggest issue with a secret or hiding something is you are afraid people may find out. And so to prevent that secret from being found out, what do you do? You change right and wrong, right? You will be willing to lie to protect that secret, to protect that thing, to protect that embarrassment, when otherwise you wouldn't say that that is something that defines you. You wouldn't consider yourself a liar, but to protect that, you will. You will, in some cases, even undermine relationships just to avoid that truth coming out. In fact, some people will even go to great lengths to do wrong by other people to protect that coming out. Why? Because you're afraid. 
Or if you have a relationship in your past that has meant something to you and someone betrayed you or hurt you or you know, undermined your trust or was very inconsiderate or something like that, um, it, one, makes you angry, right? You're upset that they hurt you and they said those things or they did those things or whatever it may be. You're angry. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but I bet you in the mix of that anger, there was also a bit of fear. There was a bit of anxiety. There was a bit of worry because you were afraid of what they may be telling other people about you. You were afraid of how they may treat you in the future. You may be afraid of running, them, running into them out in the world and, and how they were going to treat you. Maybe they were gonna cause you harm or the situation at hand that they created or in your mind they created was going to continue to cause you harm. And so therefore, you really considered and maybe even made some decisions that were maybe more on the wrong side than what you normally would have. Like you told yourself it was okay to judge them now when normally you wouldn't consider yourself a very judgmental person or you may talk bad about them to other people so that other people, like you knew that you'd have people in your camp if things went south, you know? You had your, your you know, people that were on your side of the equation and there was the people on the other side and so you, you wanted to kind of hurt them back if you could and so, you know, maybe you did some things to kind of poke or throw spears at them so that you could, could regain control and uh, of the situation. And because you feel like the situation at hand was unfair, that you were getting the short end of the stick, that you deserve better or whatnot. And so what did you do? You compromised your traditional values, your traditional version of right and wrong, because you're afraid. And so that's what I wanna talk about today. Because in the midst of that, we have some big decisions and big consequences often at hand. Probably consequences that we don't even realize. And so to do that, we're gonna go back to the story that we've been in the last two weeks. And if you haven't been there, that's totally okay. You can go back and watch um, the last two weeks about David and Saul. It was King Saul at the time and David who would eventually become king of Israel. They lived about 3,000 years ago. Uh, David would become a great Israelite king, well-known. They make statues and paintings and all this uh, about him. And uh, David, so far in this story, we've been in 1 Samuel, he's been rocking it. I mean, he is uh, a guy that you should admire so far in this story. Like in the midst of change and challenge, David stepped up. Like David was the rock. He met those challenges and that change with fear or with faith, excuse me. He met those with uh, leadership. He met them by taking the high road uh, and, you know, sticking to his moral compass, sticking to God's moral compass. And so you, again, you can always watch those uh, the past two weeks online. But um, so to pick up the story, First Samuel, um, at this point in the story that we've been going on so far, David is on the run. That's really all you need to know. He's on the run because King Saul is done with David and he wants to uh, take him out because David's popularity, Saul felt threatened by it. Um, Saul, Saul is under the uh, idea now that David's after him, even though David has done nothing, truly nothing wrong, other than serving King Saul. But this, David is now on the run, is where David slips up, as so many of us do. And this is why this story is so incredibly relatable and why we need to pay attention because this is the point at which we see David falling to fear. David in this moment falls to fear. He gives in to fear. Changes at hand, he could be afraid. So far he has it, he's met it well, but this is it. He does not meet the situation with love. He does not go the high road as Stephanie was talking about last week, meeting situations with love. And he changes what's right and wrong. And that was what was really admirable about David up to this point in the story is he stuck with it. 
and now he's gonna give up. And, and you've seen this story. You've seen this story in TV shows. You've seen this story in real life. And you've maybe even seen this story in your own life, though it's difficult to look at when we give up on what is right and wrong. So David escapes Jerusalem. He's on the run. He's all alone, which is a very new experience for David. Uh, for the past few years, he's, or months at least, he's been a kind of a big deal. A lot of attention goes to him. Uh, he's on his way uh, to a nearby town called Nob. And I wouldn't, like, I, w- I would put up a map of where that is, but we actually we don't know where that is. Archaeologically, we have some ideas of where the, the little town of Nob would have been, but there's no, like, evidence to say this is for sure where it is. Sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. Uh, y'all, we're, we're still learning so much about um, the uh, traditions of the past and the history of the past through archaeological discovery, and we'll learn more and more every year. It's really cool, especially if you get to go to Jerusalem and experience that. So anyways, um, some, somewhere he's outside of Jerusalem, maybe a day or two walk, okay? And he goes to Nob because that's where the tabernacle is, the tabernacle tent. And this goes all the way back to the early pages of, of the Old Testament uh, with um, Moses and the law and the place of meeting. And this is where the presence of God resided. This was the holy of holy places, okay? Eventually, they would make it into a temple and it would sit in Jerusalem. But right now, it's portable still. And so it would move around. Uh, and right now, it's in Nob. And so he's going there. And you think to yourself, I think to myself, great, he's heading to connect with God. He's heading to a safe space to kind of level set before he figures out what he's going to do next. He's going to go be in the presence of the Lord. He's going to seek out faith. Wow, what an awesome thing to do. Go, David. But that's absolutely not what he's going to do. Because he goes there, and he's going to have this exchange with the high priest, whose name is Elimelech, uh, the head of the church, if you will, but the head of the, um, the faith, uh, the Jewish faith at the time, the Israelite faith, uh, and the kind of the conduit between God and the people, the high priest, okay? And so he shows up, and yeah, I don't know, he walks in maybe to the tent area or something, and there's the high priest, Elimelech, and he, and he looks up, and there's David walking towards him. And here's what First Samuel says. Elimelech trembled when he met David. And we don't know for sure why he trembled, but I suppose we could insinuate uh, that the whole situation took him by surprise, because you look up and you're like, is that that famous person? Like, if you looked up and you saw, like, a famous actor or actress or somebody that everybody knows or politician or something, you're like, whoa, what, what's this guy doing here? But it's not just any guy. It's David. It's the, it's the guy whom people are singing about in, in song and verse that's greater than Saul, and he slays so many people. He's one of Saul's his right-hand man, his best warrior. He slayed Goliath, you know. I mean, this is a guy um, who's not only faithful, but he is a proficient, proficient warrior. And I think the whole situation just took him by surprise. And so he trembled. And he asked him a very honest question, David, why are you alone? Why is no one with you? And this is that moment where we have a decision to make. And usually, unfortunately, we usually make this decision prior to this moment. Like, we know what we're going to do when we go into these moments. But this is the right and wrong decision for David. And he's not going to choose right. Because the honest answer would have been, hey, Elimelech, good to see you again. Uh, David here. Saul's lost his mind. He's going after me. He's trying to kill me. I'm running away. But that's not what David does. Because fear creeps into David's heart and David's mind. 
And he tells himself something that we tell him ourselves. We give ourselves excuses and justification and everything else in between, don't we? And what does David probably tell himself? He says, well, if I tell Elimelech the truth, then he's probably not gonna believe me because I'm all alone and the situation at hand. He's probably gonna go tell Saul, who's then gonna know where I'm at and the direction I'm heading, and he's gonna come after me, or maybe Elimelech will call for guards or anything like that, and it's just gonna ruin everything. And so I can't be honest with this guy. There's just no way I can be honest that I could do in this situation the right thing. And so this is where the disaster starts, and he lies. Right and wrong don't matter here because of fear. And so what does he say? He answered Elimelech, the priest, the king sent me on a mission and said to me, no one is to know anything about the mission I am sending you on. How convenient. How convenient as he lies through his teeth because that's what fear does. It takes this healthy situation and corrupts it. And corrupts it. And this is, I think, you know, for, for Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, if you're not a Christian, you're just figuring out, you get to look at Christians and say, hey, hey, Christians, this is what you should be doing, okay? If you consider yourself a Jesus follower, here's how you should approach this situation and recognize what David is about to learn, that fear corrupts your confidence in God. David is standing before the high priest of the Lord, a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, And his response is to what? Lie. Like on earth, he is in proximity of the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holy, and his choice before God's presence and before um, God's ambassador, if you will, is to lie. And when you let fear destroy your confidence in God, it's gonna block your ability to feel God's presence, to hear anything from God and the strength that he could give you. And in so doing, lose what's right and what's wrong. Because that's what fear does. It inhibits love, as Stephanie said last week. Love prioritizes people. Love prioritizes your neighbor. Love prioritizes truth and grace and your family and your friends. Fear prioritizes you above all else. And whenever it takes hold, you will compromise right and wrong because it, it is whatever, right and wrong doesn't matter, it's whatever is in the best service of number one, you. There's no room for curiosity and fear. There's no room for relationships. There's no room for God's spirit. And so that's why David lies to Elimelech to protect himself. He betrays another's trust as if it didn't even matter. But it does matter. Because so often in our lives, what we don't realize is what we are afraid is gonna happen, what we're hiding behind and fear is driving us to believe is eventually gonna happen in one way or the other anyways. Because as the story goes on now, it says, one of Saul's servants was there that day detained before the Lord. He was Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. So what's gonna happen anyways? Saul's gonna find out regardless. Because Doeg's sitting over there in the corner like, is that David? What is happening here? And so he's watching this whole thing transpire. Watching David betray what is right and what is wrong. And what was inevitable that Saul was gonna find out is gonna happen anyways. But it doesn't get worse. Doeg's watching. David's lying to Elimelech's face before the Lord 
And David says this, don't you have a spear? David asks the high priest for a spear. He is going to fight fire, Saul, throwing spears at him with fire, which, I mean, outside of actually fighting real fire, does not go well. And then it, it, like, it gets so much worse, and it's not even the end of getting worse. He goes on, does he have a spear or a sword here? I just haven't brought mine because, you know, the king's mission was so urgent. Okay, wait, so, so David, you're telling me that Saul, the guy who always has a spear in his hand, like five times throughout the Old Testament, talks about how Saul had a spear near his head or on him or holding a spear and all this stuff. So you're telling me it was so urgent, Saul didn't even have time to hand you a spear, but for some reason you're able to stop before the high priest and say, hey, God's representative, do you got a spear on you? Could I borrow one or a sword perhaps? He doubles down on the lie because that's what we do. When we're afraid, we double down because then we're afraid now people are going to find out the lie upon the lie upon the lie upon the lie. And they're going to find out we're afraid. And how many people in your life do you want to know that you're afraid? We don't want to admit that. We don't want to be honest about that. And so instead of trying to make it better, what do we do? We make it worse. Haven't brought my sword. David is now becoming a Saul. He's doing the same thing that Saul did, trying to regain a control, regain security in his fear. And so Elimelech the priest replied, he said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword but that one here. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So the sword of Goliath, whom David slew for Saul, which made David extremely popular among the entire nation of Israel, just happens to be there. And so do you think David's gonna say, oh man, this has gone too far. No, I don't wanna take up the sword because the message that's gonna send to Saul is gonna be bad. He's gonna lose his mind. If he finds out I have the sword of Goliath, whom you know, rose me to popularity. All that Saul's gonna be able to think about is he's got the sword, he's coming after me to take over with that sword. That's all he's gonna think, right? And so what does David do? He says, there is none like it. Give me that sword, buddy. Look at you coming through. I'm ready, you know? I mean, it's like, this has devolved into a terrible situation, Because Saul, as soon as he finds out from Doeg what's happened, that David has taken up the sword of Goliath, he is going to absolutely lose it. Like to a fear to a point of no return. And that's exactly what happened. And Saul shows up in Nob at the tabernacle and not only kills Ahimelech, but his entire family. Because he is so consumed with fear but also because David was so consumed with fear. And David justified his lies because of the fear. Because think about it. What if David would have stopped in this moment and, and just sat down and listened to a nudge from the Lord? Because I think the message that God would have gotten through, tried to get through to David, if David would have just stopped for a second and recognize the fear overflowing inside of him would have been something along the lines of, David, 
You didn't need a sword to kill Goliath. A sword did not bring you this great fame and notoriety. So why do you need one now? David, when have I failed you so far? And when has following my commands and glorifying my name failed you so far, David, that you need to take up a sword? Why do you need one now, David? Well, because you're afraid. But David, (laughs) I think the Lord would try to say to David, you're my child. Let me be your stronghold. And I, and I think this because of the psalms that are attributed to David and the songs that David wrote and the poems that David wrote, and he talked about God in this way. And I like to think it's because he learned some valuable lessons through these experiences, and he wanted to pass them along. He called God his stronghold because there is no freedom in fear. There is no peace in fear. And I think that's a message, regardless of where you are in faith, that you would benefit from today, is that in fear and anxiety and worry and compromising right and wrong, there is no peace. There is no freedom. What if David would have resisted fear and said, when Elimelech said, why are you here? What's going on? And he said something to the effect of, hey, Here's the deal, Elimelech. Everybody's singing about me. Saul's afraid of me, but I couldn't hurt. I wouldn't hurt the Lord's anointed king, which is something David will say eventually in a future interaction with Saul. Elimelech, I wouldn't hurt the Lord's anointed. He started throwing spears at me because he feels threatened. He's afraid. And so I left and I'm running. Got any food? I'm hungry. Can you help, help me out? Then Elimelech would have the choice of how to respond to that truth. And he could have very well said, hey, David, I hear where you're coming from, but um, you know, I serve the king and I really can't help you in this moment. And so I would you know, encourage you to keep moving. Could have said that, who knows? And then Doeg would have gone back to Saul and said, hey, he went to Elimelech, Elimelech did not give him the sword of Goliath. He could have, but didn't. He said, hey, I serve the king, and so you gotta keep moving, David. That, that could have happened. We don't know. We'll never know. That's what lies do, though, is they corrupt. That's what fear does, though. So often it corrupts, and we'll never get to know if the outcome could have been different. And so the truth that I want you to leave here with today, that I think you would all be, again, regardless of your faith, where you are in your faith, would be better served if that in the middle of that change that you may be going through right now, you may have gone through in the past, and you certainly will go through in the future, in the middle of that fear, as it creeps into your heart, often overshadowed sometimes by our anger, so recognize, hey, there's a piece of my anger that is driven by fear, and you call it for what it is, that you remember this thing. And this this thing, good news, it was gonna be a really lame thing. And then it got really a lot better because I had this this version of this statement, this little one-liner for you to remember, and it was pretty lame. And then uh, I I talked to Aaron, who's been coming here for a couple 
uh, of months so far, uh, new Infuse and Tender, and he was sharing um, some of the things he kind of lives by. And um, so his version of this was way better than mine, uh, and it rhymes. And uh, so I was like, can I share that, this little gem with everybody this week? And he said yes, because this is something he tells his students in class. Um, I think they even have a song. He has shirts for this, people. You can maybe hit him up to buy a shirt from him. This is, this is the phrase, okay? Shine a light and do it right, or do what's right. Shine a light and do what's right. And I love this because it is so Jesus. The disciples went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, if, if my friend wrongs me, if they hurt me, if they betray me and all this stuff, how many times do I gotta forgive them? Do I have to forgive them more than once? If I forgive them once, can we just call it good and then I can be angry at them and be afraid of them and you know, back and forth and build anger and fear and anger and fear? And so Jesus says, nope. He's like, okay, well, what if I forgive them seven times? Is that enough? And Jesus says, no, you need to forgive them 77 times. In other words, it's never enough. You need to keep forgiving them. You need to keep loving them. Why? Because otherwise then fear takes hold and anger takes hold and there's no room for love and confidence in your heavenly father will be eroded. So keep hitting those people, not with your fist, but with forgiveness. Do not be afraid to do that. Do not be afraid. Well, Jesus, what if somebody actually hits me? What do I do? Do I hit them back? Because that's what fear would do, right? That's the fear response, fight or run away. Jesus said what? Turn the other cheek. Fear says, stay mad, get angry, you'll be justified. But what did Jesus say? Go to your brother and reconcile with them. Forgive them, reconcile. Before you even reach out to God, make it right with your brother or sister. Come to peace, reconcile with one another. Do not give in to fear. Jesus and God said over and over and over again, throughout the whole Bible, over and over, I can't tell you how many times this was said. Do not fear. Don't do it. Why? Why? Because it is really difficult. It's really easy to fear. It's very difficult to do what's right. It's very difficult in a situation to shine a light, to follow Christ. When we fear the truth or the truth coming out, we have a tendency to lash out. When we have a fear that we're not gonna be accepted, when we have a fear that we're gonna be overwhelmed by peer pressure or the consequences sometimes of our actions, we go to fear as a defensive mechanism, when really, and then we compromise what's right and wrong, and we really should go to truth. Because you never know the full consequences of your actions. Like, you're afraid it's gonna get worse, but I can guarantee you, you will make it worse by compromising or continuing to compromise what is right and what is wrong. Especially that version of right and wrong that you live by most of your life. But in those scary situations, we tend to bend those rules to alleviate short-term issues, but in so doing generally create long-term issues. The truth is that we should tell the truth. You know, sometimes fear is an okay thing. It helps us pay attention to something. 
when it's not going well. It may say, hey, you need to walk away from that relationship like David did because they're controlling you with fear. And if somebody is controlling you with fear, that's not loving. It's gonna be very difficult for God to make his way into that situation. It's very difficult. But when you do, when you walk away from fear, that's where freedom and peace can be found. I mean, think about how you parent or how you were parented. Would your parents ever be okay? Or how often would your parents be okay if you said, well, I, knew, I know you said this was what's right and this was what's wrong, but you know, given the circumstances and all this thing, I think uh, I should have, uh, you know, I think I was justified in picking the more wrong option. You know, Generally, a parent is not gonna say, hey, that's okay that you hit him back in the face. That'll fix it. That's healthy. Continue to do that through adulthood because if you do it as a child and you get it right then, if you keep hitting people through adulthood, it's really gonna work out for you. No, you say you can't do that because in adulthood, it will not work out for you. There will always be someone bigger. You know what I mean? But yet we do that more often than not with our words, even as adults. Why? Because we're afraid. If the roads aren't safe and you can't drive legally, then maybe, just maybe, I'm talking to myself here, you shouldn't drive at all, right? If you have to lie about it, it probably isn't right and it definitely won't shine a light. As our church changes over the next year or so, as we go from kind of two locations, online and in person, to a location in Cedar Rapids as well, things will change. And our response to change generally will be, oh no, this affects me and I'm not sure I like it. Therefore, I will be afraid and angry and I won't shine a light. Instead, what if you meant it with curiosity? What if you meant, met it, the change and the challenge, by prioritizing people and loving people and seeking the spirit as David did in his best moments and as David did not do in his worst moments. That's what the great thing of Jesus, following Jesus has taught me is life is, is better doing right. It's just better. Not always comfortable, not always fun, but it is better. It is better. This is why when we talk about groups, we, talk, we do this a couple times a year and we talk about joining a group. Why? Because fear is difficult. It's navigating fear is difficult when you're alone, like David was. But if David would have had people with him, as David eventually would, it could make it better. And that's the great thing of the church. The church can help with that. The church can come alongside you. Again, regardless of your faith, when we say imperfect people exploring faith, we really mean that. You can join a group and not have faith figured out. In fact, a majority of people at Infuse do not have it figured out. A majority of people at Infuse have not been to church in a long time and they're coming back for the first time. And that's okay. But let's learn and let's grow. Imagine, just real quick, imagine if tomorrow or this week, everyone did this. They said, yes, I was wrong. Yes, I was afraid of the consequences. Yes, I'm gonna... I'm gonna be honest now and I'm gonna ask for reconciliation. I'm gonna ask for forgiveness and we're gonna figure this out. Let's be honest. 
our world doesn't even know how to process something like that. All we know how to do is like shame and push people down and push them away and, um, you know, exile them in a way. We don't know how to reconcile. You know why? Because we're also just afraid. And it is so hard to reconcile when people are afraid. So just imagine in our world, I don't, it's even difficult to do. Like, I don't, what would all the politicians do? I don't know. Like, hey, I was wrong. You know, what? Like, if you had all of the politicians, like, in just one branch of government, just be like, hey, been messing up for a while. It's like, whoa, who are you? I don't even know if I can trust you, you know? Like, could this be part of the problem in our world? As fear hits us and we change the rules. And this is why I think Jesus is still so incredibly relevant to today because in the midst of the world's rules, he came in and he was a light, consistently right, driving us to a higher standard that he knew we could reach with his help and forgiveness. So my encouragement to you is to really consider how it looks like to shine a light and to do it right, to let your heart really be changed by that love and to share that with other people to put your value in Christ and to realize your value in Christ. And the confidence that, yes, doing the right thing may be difficult and uncomfortable, but it is still the right thing to do. And sometimes that brings a great deal of freedom because it's just more straightforward. It's just straightforward, though difficult, to do. But that's where peace is, and that's where freedom is. If you would, bow your heads, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, Lord, thank you. Um, Thank you that we can learn from David's mistakes, that we just don't have to make them ourselves. Thank you that we get to look at this 3,000-year-old story and in some ways realize that we haven't changed too much, that we're still wrestling with some of the same problems that humanity was wrestling with millennia ago but that we could also find peace and freedom that your truth of not fearing, but meeting it with faith, meeting it with forgiveness, meeting that fear with curiosity and with hope, meeting that fear in a very unusual way, like turning the other cheek of doing what's right, even when what's right is difficult, those truths and so many others are still things we can do and still things we can find peace in, we can still find freedom in, we can still find transformation and redemption in. The fear doesn't have to control us. It can guide us, it can help us to pay attention to what's going on around us, but it doesn't have to control us. And that your values, your love can guide us even in the midst of change and challenge. Lord, help us to connect with you, that kind of God, that kind of value setter, that kind of light in the darkness that you are, that you um, showed through your son, Jesus, that you um, encourage and and, uh, strengthen us with through your spirit. Help us to look at that. Help us to be drawn to that every day, to realize by taking steps towards you, not leaps sometimes, but simply just steps, one after the other after the other towards you, we can experience that peace and hope and grace instead of that fear and worry and anxiety that so consume our world. 
that we can do right because it's right. And because doing right shines a light and encourages others to do the same. Lord, help each of us, no matter where we are, no matter our relationship with you or lack of relationship with you, feel in our hearts and our presence and our spirit that this is good, that this is right because it's from you. It's thousands of years old from you to help us navigate and go through and experience life as it was meant to be today. Lord, help us in this. In your name I pray, amen.